the Book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, This family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, 
Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed. So that's the story of Ruth. Amen. Let's pray. You know, um, we just want to look at the last bit of chapter four. So last week we, we finished up with uh, Boaz and Ruth getting married. Um, but for us to really understand the last part of the story and for us to really understand the significance of the last part is you need to know where the story started from. And it kind of quickly goes over it, but it talks about the beginning of chapter one where Ruth was just in a really bad place. Um, her husband died, her father-in-law, she didn't even get to meet because he died, brother-in-law died, sister-in-law left. Married 10 years, didn't have any kids. And then her mother-in-law, Naomi, says she's heading back home to Israel because there's no food, no work, and no future. It doesn't get any worse than uh, what Ruth was going through. And yet Ruth, because of her loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi, follows um, Naomi back to Israel uh, to search for some answers. Once they get back, Ruth finds herself literally picking up scraps in the field. But through God's providence, and the word providence means the foreseeing care and guidance of God, ends up in a field of the man named Boaz, who just happens to be, once again, through God's providence, a guardian redeemer of Naomi's late husband, meaning that he had a legal obligation to help Naomi's family when they are in desperate need, which was now. And the story goes on, and Boaz ends up redeeming Ruth and her mother-in-law, um, Naomi. So that's the story. We pick up the story, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. When Naomi took the child in her arms, uh, then, the, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. 
The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Boaz and Ruth get married, and almost immediately she gets pregnant. Now, once again, we read scripture like this, and we're like, you know, they slept together, and then they got pregnant. It's like, that happens. But what we forget is Ruth was married for 10 years. For 10 years, she couldn't have a kid. 10 years. And the shame and the stigma that came with that, not being able to bear a child in that, in that culture was really bad. And yet, she gets married to Boaz and on their honeymoon, bang, it's the jackpot. See, sometimes we have to remember the beginning for us to appreciate the present. See, you got to go, what, what's the difference? Did Boaz just have good soldiers? Is that, is that, you know, was he just healthier than Ruth's late husband? But the text tells us the Lord enabled her to conceive. That's all we know. And you know what? That's all we need to know. The difference between Ruth getting pregnant now and not being able to get pregnant for 10 years is in that one line, the Lord enabled her to conceive. It was God who made it happen. And that's been the foundation of the whole story of Ruth, that it's God that moves, not when we force things to happen. Ruth waited on Boaz. Boaz waited on the other guy that was in line to redeem It's when we wait and allow God to move is when God gives us the best. Now, not only does she conceive, but she conceives a son. I don't want to sound sexist, but sons are awesome in that culture, okay? In that culture, sons were more important than daughters, okay? Don't don't blame me. Okay, I didn't make the rules. It's because the son was the one who carried the family name. Okay? The son had the responsibility of carrying the family name. And and these days, the family name doesn't mean too much. But back then, the family name was so important. If you didn't have a son, you didn't have a future. Now, in Naomi's situation, there was no chance. Her husband died. Her two sons died without having kids. There was no chance that she was going to have anyone to carry on the family name. And yet God did this amazing miracle through Boaz. The family name was redeemed. And then there was a future that both Naomi and Ruth could look forward to. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. How precious that moment. How precious that moment. And once again, now we read that Naomi took the child. Of course, it's a grandchild, right? But we got to remember from where Naomi came from. 
She was in famine, so she had, to, she had to move to a foreign country. She gets there with her two boys, and the husband dies. The boys get married, and then the boys die, and they didn't have any kids. So she's got no future, she's got no job, she's got no, no, no food, she's got no money. She literally was in the worst place possible. She comes back to Bethlehem, and people are like, Naomi, you're back. And she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And yet, from that moment, and then Boaz, and then Ruth and Boaz, and the guardian kinsman, and then suddenly she's pregnant, and suddenly she has a son, and then Naomi gets to hold this child. It's not just a grandmother holding uh, their grandchild. You've got to understand the depth of how bad it was for Naomi. Now, the, the last part of Ruth 4 finishes with what we call a genealogy, which is a list of the family line. Now, I know that this Ruth series is meant to finish today, but I've got some great news. You come back next week. We're going to go one more week in Ruth. It's a bonus, bonus sermon. Um, and we're going to look at the genealogy a little bit more in depth. Now, I know that may not excite you, but it's very exciting, I promise you. Ruth 4.18 this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadad. Aminadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And everyone's like, great. It's just a bunch of names. But if you know Scripture, and if you know even, even a little bit about the Bible, that David isn't just a David. That David is King David. That's the David and Goliath David. That's the David and King Saul David. That's the David, the man after, uh, after God's own heart David, the one who wrote the Psalms, is one of the biggest heroes in the Old Testament. David just happens to be the great-grandson of Boaz. And that's not all. When, actually, when we go to Matthew chapter 1, and we see the, the whole family lineage, and this is what we're going to do next week, from Abraham. God calls Abraham, you will be the father of my nation. And 42 generations, 14, 14, 14, where Boaz, Obed, and David are a part of it. And it ends in Matthew 1.16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Jesus Christ is a descendant of Ruth and Boaz. That's how it all connects. I'm, I'm getting shivers just, just saying that, right? I keep telling you, right, there's no such thing as coincidence. The whole story of the Bible is about this genealogy, and the climax of it is what we're going to celebrate on Wednesday at Christmas with the birth of Jesus. Jesus is one of Boaz's descendants. I'm going to talk more about that next week. So we, we, we now know the story of Ruth. We now know the story of Ruth and Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. And we've got to go, well, that's great for them. 
You know, sometimes when we read stories, it's a great story. But what's that got to do with me? You know, that's what a lot of believers we struggle with is we read scripture and it's great because, you know, especially in, in like the epistles or in the gospels, it talks about Jesus, talks about how he lived, and you go, yeah, that's how I should live. In the epistles, you know, Paul's saying, you live like this. And so you go, okay, that's how I should apply it in my life. But how do we apply Ruth in our lives? How do, we, how do we apply the story of this girl, this Moabite, this foreigner girl in the Old Testament, right? And this love story that happens, happens in the middle. How do we apply that in our lives? Well, when we connect the story of Ruth into the whole story of Scripture, one of the things that stands out and one of the things that we need to understand is in the same way Boaz was the guardian redeemer for Ruth, uh, for Naomi and her family. Boaz's descendant, Jesus Christ, is the guardian redeemer for each and every one of us. See, one of the things about Boaz that we read in the book of Ruth is he's a man of character. He's a man of integrity. There's never a negative word spoken about Boaz. And of course, he was merely human. So we know he's not perfect, but he's pretty close. And he had the ability, the, the, the opportunity to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And even though it cost him, it cost him financially, it cost him his reputation, He was willing to do so, and he was willing to redeem them. His love for Ruth and his loyalty to Naomi's family allowed him to do that. In the same way, it costs God very dearly to redeem his people. It cost him his own son, Jesus, who was born a man, lived as a man on earth, just like us, and died on the cross to save all of us from our sins. We see the character of Boaz and we think, what an amazing person. What an amazing character. And I wonder if we can step back and think the same of Jesus and what he's done for us. Now, the problem is, the the, the problem why we struggle to see that connection of Boaz being sort of an imprint of what was to come in the form of Jesus. The problem exists is that that we struggle to see how bad our situation is. See, Naomi knew her situation was really bad. We read the story and we go, wow, Naomi's situation was really bad. You know, she foreign land and then, you know, loses her husband and loses her sons and has to come back. She is in trouble and she knows she's in trouble. That's why she comes back to her home country. And so the opportunity of someone to redeem the family, she knows she needs that. But the problem for us is we just don't know how bad we need a savior. One of the biggest obstacles to people believing, not just believing in God. You know what? A lot of people believe in God. They believe in some sort of supernatural, super spiritual being that is beyond our understanding. Okay? But can I tell you, that doesn't give you some kind of spiritual step up. Actually, a lot of people believe that. 
But there's a huge difference to believing that there is something that exists outside of our five senses to believing that what that is is, is God and God of the Bible. One of the biggest obstacles is why do we need God? Why do we need to be redeemed? Why do we need to be saved if we're not that bad? Like, what do we need to be saved from? A lot of people, you, 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 say, you, you tell them, look, you, you need Jesus. Why do I need Jesus? Why do I need a guardian redeemer? Well, it's because of your sin. And they go, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't haven't been unfaithful to my spouse. I haven't stolen from the bank. And, and in our minds, we're so good at doing everything we can to move away from the fact that we are sinful. Now, sinful just means missing the mark. And when we're talking about being sinful in the presence of God, we just miss the standard of God. And Scripture tells us that no one, no one can reach the standard of God. I can tell you, you do not reach the standard of God. You miss the standard of God. See, but the problem is, for some of us, and, and, and you know, in, in, even in Scripture, it shows us the difference between a, 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 a religious person and, and a sinner. The sinner's like, I know I'm sinful, so I know I need God. Whereas the religious person's like, you know, I'm okay. I've been in a church for a while. I pray. I don't really need God. But that's the problem. See, people outside, they just don't think that anything's wrong because they they can't calculate what life's like with a God. But it's not just people outside. It's people inside the church. Why go to church? I give money to the poor. I'm good. I'm good to my mom and dad. What's sin? That's the problem. If you don't feel like you need to be saved, then you will never seek for a savior. If Naomi never thought I had a problem, regardless of the fact that she was in famine, regardless of the fact that her husband had died, regardless of the fact that her sons had died, that she had no future, she had no descendants to carry the family line, but she sat there and went, you know what, I don't think it's that bad. Then she never would have gone back home. And if she, even if she went home, she never would have sought out Ruth to pursue Boaz. If you don't think you have a problem, then you never have to look for a solution. That's the reality. Let me ask you, friend, do you really feel like you are in need of God and his son Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the saving from eternal death in hell? Straight away, even just in that question, the two red flags that come up is, hey man, I'm, my sins aren't that bad. If I do good, doesn't that just make up for it? You know, if I try hard, you know, doesn't God just accept me for, you know, my good effort? Or well, the second one is, hell, is that even a real thing? You know, isn't that just something to scare people to living good moral lives? But when we go to scripture and we look at scripture and we we just dig deeper into Scripture. These things unravel piece by piece. And the Bible tells us that when we were born, because of our, uh, we were born sinful because of our human nature. And as we live, we are sinful because of our thoughts, deeds, 
And because of that, any sin, whether it be nature or deed, is offensive to God and is not acceptable to God. Now, that's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. Now, what you do with that is up to you. Whether you choose to believe that or not. And that, that's the thing. You know, I'm, I'm pretty tough-skinned. My wife tells me that, right? I'm pretty tough-skinned. So when people disagree with what I have to say, I, I don't mind. I can deal with that. So when I say that, when I say that you are sinful by nature and you are sinful by, by your deed, and, and, and you, you, you're looking at me going, hey, I don't agree with you. I'm like, that's fine. We can still go to Maccas. We can still hang out. We can still be friends, okay? But that's not my opinion of you. It's God's opinion of you. You got to deal with God. That's what Scripture tells us. Any type of sin, big, small, past, present, future, does not matter how big, how small. doesn't matter what other people think about your sin. Any sin is not acceptable to God. And in that, we are not acceptable to God. That's it. That's the bottom line. There is not a single deed that you can do. There is not a lifetime of good works or charity that you can be a part of. There isn't a number of church services that you can attend that will ever save you from your sin. You can never save yourself from your sin. The only one that is sinless can come to redeem you and I. And that was Jesus on the cross. That's why we celebrate Christmas. See, depending on where you sit on these ideas of your sin and salvation is going to depend is going to ultimately give you the outcome of what kind of a Christmas you're going to have this year or what kind of Christmas you've been celebrating till this point in life. Depending on your position, on, on where you sit in your need for God's redemption, re, the need of a guardian redeemer for your life, it will completely alter the way you view and experience Christmas. If you don't believe that you're a, sin, you're a sinful person, and if you don't then therefore believe that you need a savior, then what Christmas will be for you is a public holiday, great meal, Maybe even a church service, a lot of presents, food, and time with family. And that's what Christmas is, is going to be. That's what you'll be celebrating. And, and, and if that's the case, that's fine. Enjoy yourselves. Behave yourselves. Double demerits. You know, just be safe. But if you understand that you are in need of a Savior, and that Savior that guardian redeemer was born on Christmas Day and his name was Jesus. Then when you get to celebrate Christmas, when you get to celebrate the coming of Jesus, of your Savior, then can I tell you, the holiday, the, the presents, the family dinners and, and all of that, that's great. But that's secondary. That's secondary to celebrating the birth of of your Savior.
of my Savior. Why do churches focus so much on Christmas? Because it's a time where we get to recognize and acknowledge our guardian redeemer. Jesus came and he came to save us. And just like Naomi and Ruth's heart towards Boaz to their guardian redeemer, ours should be filled with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. And it completely alters the way we do Christmas. I really pray that Christmas isn't just about holidays or presents or food, but it would be a timely reminder of the greatest gift that was given to us by our creator himself, his one and only son, Jesus, who came to seek the who came, who came to seek and save the lost. Don't turn up to someone's birthday party and celebrate the cake and celebrate the gifts and celebrate the decorations and celebrate the food without celebrating whose birthday it actually is. Don't forget that. And if you truly believe, if you truly believe in your sinfulness, and if you truly believe that you need a Savior, then when you come around to Christmas and you know that God gave His one and only Son, Jesus, then when you celebrate, well, that's what you celebrate. I'm not downplaying food and holidays and gifts and not at all, but there's so much more to celebrate in Christmas. Finally, maybe Christmas has always been about these things, the gifts, and, and maybe in the last 12 months is the first time you've actually heard about Jesus. Or maybe this is the first time that you're taking Jesus seriously I'm like, when you come to Christmas this year, put him first and foremost. Before everything else, put the birthday boy there first. And then see, and then see what the celebration's like. I love Christmas because it's the day where my guardian redeemer came to save me. It's the day that, that I'm reminded of how much God loves me, that he will send his one and only son, Jesus, to come to earth. He would send him to this universe to die on the cross, not just for the sins, the theoretical sins of the world, but for me, for my sins. And I know my sins. I know them very well. I know how sinful I am. I know how wretched and wicked I am. You know, people, there's two types of people, people that have known me for a little bit and people that have known me for, for a long time. The people that know me for, for a little bit, you know, they go, wow, Steve, he's, you know, he's, he's got four kids. He's amazing. You know, he's, just look at him. He's so good looking. See, see my sinfulness coming out? See your sinfulness coming out? Okay, I'm just saying. Just trying to, you know, emphasize the point. You know, people, people that don't know me, they, they think that I, I got my life in order. People that know me, they know my life ain't in order. They know the, 
the, the addictions that I struggle through. They know the, the things that are clicking on in my head. Even to the point where sometimes I think when Christmas comes around, they celebrate for me. Jesus was born for Steve. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. And I celebrate Jesus, I, I think, more than anyone because I know who I am. I know very, very clearly that without God, that I'd been in a lot of trouble. Spiritually, I'd be in trouble. Even on this planet, I'd, I'd been in a lot of trouble. No meaning, no purpose. But he saved me. He saved me. He gave me a reason to live. He gave me great joy. He gave me joy from things that, that, that can't be found in this world. People are always chasing joy. People are always chasing satisfaction. And I'm telling you now, there's nothing that will ever satisfy a soul. Maybe your emotions or maybe your, you know, your pleasures, but not your soul. See, that's what God gave to me. And so I wake up Christmas Day before the kids, you know, ambush me. You know, where's my presents? Little spoiled sinful kids. And I wake up and I say, happy birthday, Jesus. I'm so grateful for you in my life. And maybe that's what you need to be able to declare in your heart doesn't mean you need to have it all together. I promise you it doesn't. It doesn't mean you need to understand the Bible back to front either. I promise you you don't. But if you know, if you know how much you need a Savior and he turns up on Christmas Day, then you, you take it both two hands and you appreciate it and you are so grateful for what they have done for you. And I pray that that would be your Christmas issue. Please enjoy the holidays, enjoy the gifts, enjoy the time off, enjoy the presents, enjoy the food, enjoy your family. But just know that there is, that's all the peripheral and Jesus is in the middle. He is your guardian redeemer and desires to be so if you choose to let him. Let's pray.